proceeding in a sermon series that follows a children's Bible. It's called um, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a great little volume. If you want to get one, go right ahead. Today's uh, title is a pretty good bad idea. We're talking about the Tower of Babel today, just FYI, which uh, after much study I decided it was a pretty good bad idea. And uh, I decided to look that up on the internet to see if there were any images that might come from my title. And believe it or not, there's actually a song from the musical Waitress that's on Broadway, maybe even now, called A Pretty Good Bad Idea. And so um, I'm going to play you the first 58 seconds of this song. Uh, You won't see them moving around. It'll be their voices and uh, the lyrics. So let's go ahead and hit it. It's a bad idea, I know, I totally agree. It's a bad idea, me and you. I've never known anything so true. It's a terrible idea, me and you. You have a wife. You have a husband. You're my doctor. You got a It sounds like a fantastic musical, frankly. If you've seen the uh, movie Waitress with Carrie Russell, then you know what it's based upon. And uh, the voices are fantastic. Um, Pretty good bad idea. Okay? You can tell why it was a pretty good bad idea, I think, just from the clip. She's married. He's married. He's her doctor. She's having a baby. And uh, they're going like, this is a bad idea. But it's a pretty good bad idea. Um, The Bible has something to say about ideas like this. In um, Proverbs, we have, uh, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. I mean, that's the conundrum, isn't it? If there's a way that appears to be right, the end of it should be good, should be life. But Proverbs is telling us, the book of wisdom is saying, you know, however, sometimes things look like a pretty good idea when they're actually a bad idea. Let me give you an example just from my own life. You know, when the bills are piling up and you don't have enough money to pay them, it seems like a pretty good, bad idea to use your credit card to pay off the debts you can't afford with your regular salary. How many people 
have been trapped in that kind of thing, don't raise your hands. All right? That's just one example of a pretty good bad idea that I have had in my life, not just once. I wish I could say it was just once. And I think that's the theme of our story today. So let's go there. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. Let that sink in for a moment. We just got done with Noah and the flood, right? Mankind is wiped out. God starts over with Noah and his family. And everybody had one language. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Now, just so you know, that area is what we know as Mesopotamia, between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Mesopotamia. Meso meaning between, Potamia meaning bodies of water. There you got your Greek lesson for, t- for today, okay? There were no rocks there. They just had a lot of dirt with which they could make mud, and then they could fire those mud bricks in a kiln, and they could build stuff. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. They said... Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language... They have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there, the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So, here's an artist's conception of what a ziggurat looks like. Archaeologists have discovered about 30 ziggurats in that area, actually, over the years. Ancient ziggurats. They're not like a pyramid, really, because pyramids are hollow inside and they have rooms and caverns. But a ziggurat doesn't. A ziggurat is actually filled in with dirt and other kinds of brick. And it's dedicated to a god. It's not a burial place for some kind of king or a pharaoh or anything. 
And this is uh, probably the most powerful representation of ancient religion that we know of. Um, At the very, very top, there was like a little room. And it wasn't a temple. It was a room for the god who would come down. And there was usually a bed there for the god to rest after his journey from the heavens. And uh, there was a table set with food and He could refresh himself or herself there. And then he could or she could walk the rest of the way down the steps to mingle with the people who were worshiping the deity. So it's kind of like a train station, I guess. The best way, or or a a yurt, a place where where the God could stop. It wasn't so much that they were building a tower trying to get to heaven. Most children's Sunday school stories kind of take that direction. That wasn't the idea for a ziggurat. The ziggurat was rather a place of honor for the God to come down and then walk the rest of the way leisurely to be with his people. All right. Let's take a look at this. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. Now, I guess the good part about this is is people at this point are not killing themselves and treating themselves terribly like they were in Noah's day, right? I mean, they're actually working together. And... and, um, that seems like a good thing to me, right? They want to uh, build this tower, maybe as a legacy. You know, I mean, I'm at the age where I understand the importance of legacy. It's great to know that you're leaving something behind, and they wanted to do that. Um, thinking, what's the big deal? This seems like a pretty good idea. You know, you don't want your your family scattered over the face of the whole earth. You want to have build a tower and say, look, this is the way to come home. You know, you can find your way back. Just look for the tower and go in that direction. I think it's ironic that God comes down to look as if you can't see it from heaven already. But it's so small. <laughs> little irony here. It's so small. God decides to come down to take a look at it because it's so little. And um, here they are making this uh, room. It's not quite completed, it seems. And God's coming down anyway going, you know, it doesn't really help me to have a little resting station. I don't need that. I think one of the sins of Babel is that it brings God down to a human level. And what I mean by that is, all of a sudden, God has needs that we can provide. He needs a little rest. We can make him a bed. He needs some food after that long trip, and we can actually provide that for him. We're going to provide the God with things that he needs to appease the God, you know. It reminds me of the movie King Kong, you know, where 
the, the islanders are going, kong, 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 kong. And they're providing the sacrifice of this uh, blonde bimbo girl. And uh, is that offensive to you, blondes? I'm sorry. Okay. Not all blondes are bimbos. Just let's make that very clear. Um, anyway, so Fay Ray or whoever she is, Jessica, whatever, whatever their names are, play these parts. And, and so they're appeasing the god Kong in the movie. It's not dissimilar to what's going on here. It is said that ever since God created humans in his own image, we have not stopped returning the favor. It's a common human evil to keep trying to form God in our own image. We give God anthropomorphic qualities. These are the things that he needs. When I provide the things that God needs, I'm on God's good side. Because my God might be temperamental. Because I'm temperamental. My God might be given to anger because, because I'm given to anger. Unreasonable anger. My God might be a little selfish because, you know, sometimes I am. Kevin Miller said, The more the gods become like men, the easier it is for men to believe the gods. When both have only human appetites, then rogues may worship rogues. Rogues may worship rogues. I don't know what this episode of The Simpsons is, but it it looked good. <laughs> kind of said what I wanted it to say. I mean, if your God is an asshole, then you can be one too. Isn't that amazing? C.S. Lewis said it better. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is a supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And most are offended by the iconoclasm. And blessed are those who are not. But the same thing happens in our private prayers. In other words, if you're a Christian and God's Holy Spirit resides in you, what that means is every idea you come up with about who God is and what God is like is going to be challenged by that Holy Spirit as time goes on. You may think you know God as soon as you become a believer. I thought I did. I was talking to uh, Shara today, and she was telling me about her initial 
experience after meeting the Lord, everybody got a chance to hear about what Jesus was like. Didn't matter if it was proper time. It didn't matter if it was the proper place. It didn't matter what the context of the conversation was. You know, I would find a way to shoehorn Jesus into the conversation. I didn't care how obnoxious I was being. Now, as I grew in Christ, I found out that Jesus appears to be somewhat of a gentleman in the Scriptures. And so maybe I needed to be a little bit more sensitive with people who were struggling than I had been in the past. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, is that my idea of God was not a divine idea. And one of the marks of the Holy Spirit in my life is that God kept changing for the better my idea about what He was like. Let me tell you, God is a whole lot more loving now, 40-some years later, than He was when I was a young man. He was much more the God of fire and brimstone and judgment than he is now. I'm, I'm not saying he's not that. I'm just saying that my view of God has been altered, shattered time and time again. I decided to put a picture of C.S. Lewis smoking a cigarette because... This is scum of the earth. Is it possible for a Christian to smoke? Maybe our pictures of what Christians look like should be shattered time and time again. But we tend to think we know what God wants. We tend to think we know what God likes. And we tend to tell other people what God wants and what God likes. The prophets of Israel had something to say about that. In Psalm 50, starting in verse 7, the psalmist says, O my people, listen as I speak. Here are my charges against you, O Israel. I am God, your God. I have no complaint about your sacrifices or the burnt offerings that you constantly offer, but I do not need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens, for all the animals of the forest are mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains, and all the animals of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For all the world is mine and everything in it. Do I eat the meat of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God and keep the vows you have made to the Most High. Then call on me when you are in trouble and I will rescue you and you will give me glory. But God says to the wicked, Why bother reciting my decrees and pretending to obey my covenant? For you refuse my discipline and treat my words like trash. When you see thieves, you approve of them. And you spend your time with adulterers. 
Your mouth is filled with wickedness and your tongue is full of lies. You sit around and slander your brother, your own mother's son. When you did all this, I remained silent and you thought that I didn't care. But now I will rebuke you, listing all my charges against you. You see, God doesn't need us. Nor does God need our stuff. We are, in the words of C.S. Lewis, infinitely superfluous. Infinitely superfluous. We love God because we need Him, but we cannot make the mistake of thinking that God loves us for the same reason. It's when we remake God in our own image It is when we remake God in our own image, it's then that we think He needs what we have to offer, like our worship. God doesn't need our worship. Our money. God doesn't need our money. Our stuff. He doesn't care. Remember listening to a Sometimes I listen to TBN or watch TBN on television. Um, I think it stands for Trinity Broadcasting Network. I also think it stands for the Totally Boring Network. But they were having a praise-a-thon, give-a-thon thing. And uh, Juanita Bynum said, and I quote, Your miracle is attached to what's in your pockets right now. You're trying to hold on to it. But God sent me to tell you, let it go. Let it go. What a bunch of BS is that? Because you can't buy a miracle. You come to Jesus with a buck in your hand like it's a fire insurance plan. He doesn't need anything you got. He's only looking for a willing heart. We laugh so hard, we cry so much, try to fill our lives, but it's never enough. Foolish pride is a gun to our heads, so let the dead stay and bury the dead. So says Randy Stonehill in his song, Can't Buy a Miracle. Let me make this very clear. One of the sins of Babel was to remake God in its own image. We know what God needs. We know what God likes. Verse 6, let's go over this again. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Why is this a problem? That people should be working together. That seems like a pretty good idea. Well, they're doing it without God. And what I want to say is that it appears that unity without God 
looks a whole lot like rebellion against God. Unity without God looks a whole lot like rebellion against God. And so here we get the answer to the question, where do all the languages in the world come from? Where do all the people groups in the world come from? Ever wonder about that? Are they the result of sin? It appears so, at least in this story. Or are they an idea full of potential joy and glory for Christ? Because all things will work for the good for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. I mean, isn't the whole world God's and everything in it? Is it a good thing or a bad thing that there are separate nation-states with different languages that sometimes are in political unrest with one another and sometimes go to war with one another? Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I mean, what does God think of, let's say, one giant monolithic superstate that where we all have the same culture, we all have the same language? Does God not like that idea? Will he prevent it? Will the world end with such a giant single state and culture? I mean, all these questions flow out of this text, do they not? According to the text, I mean, the city and the tower are kind of outward expressions of some kind of inward Missing of the spiritual mark in people. It's a pretty good, bad idea. I mean, God's will is not that we should find our security in a city. It's His will that we would find security in Him. Is it not? This is a signal in verse 6 that God is not just going to Divide people by languages, but he's going to divide them uh, into different cultures. He's about to multiply languages and ethnic groups. So his response to the arrogance of humankind is to make it harder for us to unite and do things together. It's like the opposite of that song by John Lennon. Isn't it? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greater hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. I always liked that song. Um... 
I'm not sure that God does, at least not now. I think there's a time when that will all come true in terms of us being one. But it will be with God. It will be in heaven. And that's how we all live as one. I mean, this song is kind of premature. And God made sure it was going to take a long time for that to happen by dividing us, giving us all sorts of languages and cultures. I mean, does God ever act capriciously, like without forethought, just on a whim? Is it possible that that the division of people into languages and cultures is uh, a judgment as, as well as a blessing? Can he do that? Well, let's think about this. What are the benefits of having all these different cultures and languages? First of all, I think Christians are guarded. Different languages and cultures prevents the rise of one world government, one giant monolithic superstate, where Christians could be rounded up and killed en masse. I mean, we often think that uh, all these different languages are a hindrance to global evangelization, right? Obviously, God doesn't think so. Neither do the people at Wycliffe that translate the Bible into all these different languages. God sees it as uh, spreading of Christ's glory that we do it to every tribe and every nation. God is more concerned about the dangers of human uniformity than He is about the difficulties of human diversity. Let me say that again. God is more concerned about the dangers of human uniformity than He is about diversity. God likes Diversity. He came up with it. Number two, Jesus is victorious. I don't know if you've read much of the Bible, but uh, in Revelations, in Revelation and in, uh, in Daniel, as well. I mean, we're given a glimpse of what's going to happen in the future at the end of the age. And it looks like there's a one world government coming with the quote unquote man of lawlessness, some people call him the Antichrist, as the head. He will bedazzle the world. It doesn't matter what culture you come from, what language you speak, everybody on the whole earth is going to think this dude is it going to bring peace to the planet, and we'll sing. Imagine by John Lennon. All together. 
Do you know what the capital city is? Where this Antichrist reigns? In the Bible, it's called Babylon. Is that a mistake? Is that just a coincidence? That the Tower of Babel and Babylon are the same root word in Hebrew? It's the name given to the city of the beast in Revelation 14. In Revelation 17, Babylon is drunk on the blood of Christian martyrs. Her sins are heaped high as heaven. Does that sound familiar to you? Heaped high as heaven? As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. But the angel says, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city of Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Revelation 18. So it seems like in the last days, God is going to loose the restraints He has put on the face of the earth in terms of everybody having different nations. And people will gather together once again and swell with pride as they did in the days of the Tower of Babel. But Jesus will come and He will slay the man of lawlessness with the breath that comes out of His mouth. There is a victory that is going to come. And the last point is, is that Jesus is praised. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Jesus said in Matthew 28. Paul said in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the Greek being anybody else who wasn't Jewish. The great thing about Christianity is it's not a provincial religion. It's for everybody. If there were no diversity of language, if Babel had not happened then the gospel of Christ would not shine as beautifully as it does in the prism of a thousand languages. Okay, let me get this straight with you. There is a peace of God that is visible in every culture on the earth that no other culture has. God is more glorified in the diversity of the earth than He is in one giant Rigid culture. God likes different cultures, different languages. And the praise that Jesus gets from all those languages is more beautiful than the praise he would get from one culture. 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you are slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits in our throne and to the Lamb. That is a glorious picture. God has taken the sin of humankind the judgment thereof, and turned it into a blessing far beyond anything we could imagine. That's what God does. Right? TSID. It's a scum slogan. Turning shit into diamonds. It's God's best trick. He does that for cultures. He does that in your own personal life. No matter what you've been through, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what the consequences might be in your life because of the sins you've committed, God can take those things and turn them into something beautiful. Application. How to spot a pretty good bad idea. How do you do that? What's the difference between doing good on my own versus doing good with God? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus said. That's where we start. First thing is kind of to be humble. Then ask yourself, am I, am I making God into my own image here? Am I making God into my own image? Let me give you an example. How often have you said to yourself, God wants my happiness to be more important than my holiness. God wants me to be happy. That seems like a pretty good bad idea. Adultery? I mean, that's what we were watching in the video when this whole sermon started. Divorce? Sexual promiscuity? I mean, if you want that kind of God, then you should be worshiping Zeus. Because Zeus was okay with all of that. He's a very promiscuous God, going after all sorts of other goddesses and mortal women. Zeus was a God made in the Greek's image. A pretty good, bad idea. Ask yourself, um, is my God the kind of God who's okay with substance abuse? I mean, he understands how difficult my life is and he wants me to feel good. If that's the case, then maybe you should be worshiping Bacchus or Dionysus. Dionysus was that kind of a god? 
He was the God of revelry and the vine and the fruit of the vine. A little bit of madness thrown in. It's okay. Get a little bit too drunk. See what I'm saying? People have made gods into their own image. Is my God okay with stealing or shoplifting? I mean, after all, God knows how difficult my life is. He knows I need this more than the store does. He knows I need this money more than the IRS does. He knows I need this stuff more than my employer does. That's a God that I know some people have had. Because I've talked to them about it. I'm a pastor. Maybe if that's the kind of life you want to lead, then Hermes would be a good God for you. The God of thieves, by the way, of his many other duties. Hermes Mercury, I think, in the uh, Roman pantheon. Is my God okay with lying? I mean, he understands that little white lies don't matter, especially when you're lying for some greater good. The end justifies the means, after all. If that's your thinking, then maybe you should be worshiping the Greek god Tholos. Or the Norse god Loki, which you might be more familiar with given the Marvel movies. The god of trickery, of cunning, of deceit, of deception, of craftiness, the god of treachery. Because that god thinks your activity is fine. So if you don't want to fall prey to a pretty good bad idea, the first question to ask is, am I making God into my own image? Or does my image of God need to be shattered and recast? Number two, am I telling God what I want Him to do or am I asking Him what He wants? Am I telling God what I want Him to do or am I asking Him what He wants? God, what are we doing today? Where do you want me to go? As opposed to, God, I'm going here. Would you please bless this? And then I'm going over here. Would you please bless that? Why don't we ask him before we start? Hey, God, should we clone humans? What do you think? Is that a good idea? Hey, God. Should we create a more destructive bomb than the ones we have right now? What do you think of that idea, God? Or do we just go ahead and do it without asking? Hey, God, is it a good idea to genetically alter these crops? Because, you know, we could get a lot more benefit, a lot bigger harvest. I mean, maybe we should ask God those kind of questions before we pursue those kinds of of avenues. Hey God, should I begin this romantic relationship right now or not? What do you think? I mean, before we make out, 
What do you think? Hey, God, you want me to move to a new city or should I stay? Because you know, I can buy a house in another city so much more easily than I can buy one in Denver. That seems like a pretty good idea, God. What do you think? Hey, God, should I take this new job or keep the old one? Because, I don't know, my boss and I are having difficulty staying together on the same track. I don't think she likes me. Yeah, I'm trying my best. What do you, but what do you think, God? This other job looks so great. But what do you think, God? Hey, God, should we stop having children or continue to try? Do you have an opinion about that? Because it seems like a pretty good idea to stop right here where we are. Or it seems like a pretty good idea not to have any children at all. What do you think, God? Now I've gone from preaching to meddling. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to know the kind of things that Jesus says? Read what Jesus says. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. For the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians chapter 1. You don't need to build a staircase for Jesus to come down to you. He's already come down. He came all the way in the form of a baby whose birth we'll be celebrating coming up here in just a couple of months. He came to earth of His own free will. Why? Because He loves you. Because He loves me. And He is also our way to heaven. Jesus is the stairway to heaven and the stairway from heaven to earth. He accomplished this through His sacrificial death on a cross, which we'll now commemorate. On the uh, night that He was betrayed, Jesus took some bread. And He said, I want you to take this bread. I want you to eat it. For this is My body broken for you. And then he took the cup of wine. And he says, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. This cup is for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this. Eat this in remembrance of me. When we take communion, we reaffirm that Jesus is the stairway to heaven. That Jesus is the image of of God. And that God's way 
is through death and resurrection. That's come of the earth. We rip off some of the bread and we dip it into the cup. If you can't have gluten, then there should be some gluten-free crackers there for you to do that as well. You may uh, eat it right there and then at the station, or you can go back to your seat, say a prayer. You can go outside if you need to. We also have some folks back here in the prayer cave who will pray with you if there's anything going on in your life, a situation uh, or a person that you need to have prayed for. During communion is a good time to go and do that. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I praise you and I thank you for being the stairway between heaven and earth. Keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord. For you are the image of the invisible God and you are the way. It's in your name we pray. Amen.